0: In modern times, one of the most difficult issues leaders are faced with is helping those who struggle with mental health. No longer can we simply encourage a good measure of scripture study and prayer and expect everyone's life to stabilize. This is why Leading Saints felt it was so important to organize the Mentally Healthy Saints Library. There, one can find 25 plus presentations all about ministering to those who struggle with mental health. We cover topics like depression, anxiety, scrupulosity, or OCD. We even cover how to effectively refer individuals to professional therapists and make sure they are getting the help they need. This and so much more. If you'd like to review all of these sessions, we would love to have you do so at no cost. You can visit LeadingSaints.org and get access to the full library for 14 days. You'll also receive access to all our virtual libraries where we cover additional leadership related topics. So click the link in the show notes or simply visit LeadingSaints.org slash 14. All right, today I have uh, Rich Watson here with me. Rich, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Good. Now, we just recorded this episode and people should stick around. We're going to talk about some crucial information, especially when it comes to having veterans in your ward, whether you're you're a military ward or just have uh, one or two veterans in your ward and how to minister to them. But Rich, give us a quick bio Put yourself in the context absolutely so
1: uh 20 year air force veteran did multiple deployments to afghanistan iraq bosnia Uh, while i was in the air force found a passion for mental health got an education in that arena have a a master's degree in psychology a couple of other degrees finishing a phd in psychology right now i was lucky enough when i got out of the military in 2015 to transform all of that into a career where i'm working with a veteran support organization running mental health retreats and it's been absolutely fantastic to learn how to help veterans and how to really, in our mind, how to minister to them.
0: Yeah. And in this episode, we talk about just helping veterans who are transitioning out of out of their service, you know, with the military and what to be aware of. It's so easy to assume life is great for them. They're finally moved on and they can get a, a normal job and just love life. But there's so much happening with mental health, PTSD at times. The moral injury. Yep. Moral injury. Like these are terms I hadn't even heard, let alone considered. And so we we get into all that. So here's my interview with Rich Watson. Rich Watson, uh, welcome to the Leading Saints podcast.
1: Awesome. Thank you. So happy to be here. Been a fan for a long time. And just super excited to get to talk to you a little bit.
0: Nice. And so, how do you remember
1: how you first came across Leading Saints? Actually, a buddy of mine. I'll call him up. My name's names Josh Pete. He was over at my house. He's a pilot for Delta. He was over at my house when I used to live in Atlanta. And said, "Dude, you've got to check out this podcast." And so he made me listen to it while we were going for a run. I was not super thrilled about that because <laughs> listening to a podcast while you're running is just not the way to go. But nice. it got me addicted. And you know, when I lived in Atlanta, I had an hour and a half commute, so I'd listen to one or two episodes almost every day. Now that I'm back in North Carolina, my commutes diminished, so it takes me about three days to get through an episode.
0: Awesome. All right, Josh, you're like the the listener of the month or something. I need some award for sharing <laughs> leading saints. So so how long have you been listening now?
1: Probably about two two and a half, three years,
0: give or take. Okay. Great. Yeah. And I know I mean the podcast obviously Leading Saints were focused on leadership, but I'm well aware that the majority of our audience aren't like formal leaders like in a bishopric or whatnot. And so did you have some of those callings or what what's intrigued you about about the podcast?
1: So yeah, I had a actually what intrigued me to be fair is I think leadership principles whether they're church or non-church apply across the spectrum. Yeah. And I think you can use church leadership principles obviously when you're you're managing and leading teams outside of church, but also within the church. I've been in a couple different bishoprics. I've been in the High Council. I've been kind of a running joke my family and I have whenever we would move with the military. I would become ward mission leader within the first like two months of being somewhere. And then about a year later, I'd become elders quorum president. So I've held each of those callings. This was before the shift. This was just elders quorum. I think I've held ward mission leader and elders quorum president each seven times. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I've had a lot of different leadership experience in the church, which to be fair, I started young as a convert to the church. And that helped me become a better leader in my day-to-day life as well. I learned leadership more in the church than I did outside.
0: Oh, wow. How old were you when you joined
1: the church? I had just turned 20 when I joined the church.
0: Okay. So what's, what's the abbreviated story
1: of that? Yeah, the abbreviated story, I, uh, I was dating a girl, which is how a lot of stories start, right? Yep, yep. I was dating a girl. She was actually not an active member of the church at all, but her parents were insanely active. I didn't know that, you know, at the time he was in the state presidency. Her mom was a Relief Society president of the ward. Had no clue what that meant back then. But I was going deployed with the military and they said, hey, we know you want to marry our daughter. If you would, please, I'd like you to learn about what we believe. And so they gave me a Book of Mormon, and I read it when I was deployed. A guy came by my desk who happened to be uh, LDS, and he said, hey, are you reading that? And I said, yeah. He goes, cool. I used to help teach missionaries at the MTC, and I didn't know what that meant. And long story short, one night he was teaching me the abbreviated discussions. Another guy walked by, heard us talking about Joseph Smith, kind of poked his head, and he says, hey, what are you guys talking about in here? And so I had two guys teaching me in the middle of a deployment site. And we actually found a branch of the church out there at an American embassy because Christian baptisms were illegal in that country at the time. So because we were on American soil, technically the American embassy, we we're able to do the baptism there.
0: Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's great. So did you end up marrying that girl then? So yes. And then unfortunately, because we were young
1: and I, I learned a lesson, a very valuable lesson, which was you can't make people active in the church. Uh-huh. I joined yeah. the church and I told her, if you want to get married, you need to be active in church not the smartest move. I would not tell anybody to do that. And so a year into our marriage, we went to the temple. Everything was great. And then she turned around and said, this isn't what I want anymore. And Mm -hmm. that led to one thing led to another. We got divorced. But then just because I think Heavenly Father is good, about a year later, I met my wife and we've been married 22 plus years now.
0: Wow. So I'm curious, obviously, you know, like you said, you hear a lot of stories start that way with maybe a relationship leads into a discussion about the church and investigation of the church. And, and, you know, there's always that worry of like, are you just, you know, getting baptized so that you could marry me or that, you you know, you want to continue this relationship? But obviously for you, since your faith continued... So was was there a, a pretty significant conversion there early on, or or how would you describe just sort of that faith development?
1: So actually, it was almost the opposite. I had a pretty good conversion early on, but then when when everything happened, unfortunately, with my first wife, I left the church because all I knew growing up was the Catholic Church wasn't really active, but that's where my family was at, and so I went back to some of that, and I realized that I just wasn't happy. I went back to some of my old life. I went back to drinking. I went back to smoking. And just all of those types of things, and I realized, man, I am not happy. I was way happier. Going to church, and so I went back to church. Spoke with the bishop, spoke with the state president, did everything I had to do to to get squared away. And I promise you, about the day I walked out of the state president's office, I got called to be the uh, young single adult rep for our area, which is actually Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is where we live right now. Uh, was out there 22 years ago. Went to a single adult munch and mingle, and met my wife, and oh, cool. uh, you know got married six months later, which was not in my plans, <laughs> but definitely in uh, in Heavenly Father's plans for us. And uh, it's 22 years now. Wow.
0: That's awesome. Really cool. Right, Nice. So tell us a little bit about your background with, with the military, since that's going to be a big chunk of our discussion today. Absolutely. So
1: right out of high school, I spent a year going to college because I think in the 90s, that's what uh, every parent wanted their kid to do, no matter what, was just go to college. And I uh, was definitely not made out for college at that time in my life. Learned how to play foosball really well. That was probably more of the education I got was foosball. Nice. But once I was done with that, I told my dad, look, you were in the military. Your brothers were in the military. It's where I want to go. And he said, okay, just do me a favor. Go in the Air Force. Fine. I'll do
0: that. And I assume he was in the Air Force.
1: Yep. Everybody else in his family was Navy. He was Air Force. So I followed uh, followed suit. My son's actually going to be doing the same next year when he graduates. So really excited for him. But I went in the Air Force in 1995, did 20 years in the military. Uh, I got to serve all over. Somehow, I didn't get a, uh, a overseas tour. I got to do a lot of tours to Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia, because I was in that time frame as well. But for some reason, as much as I wanted to go to Italy or England or Germany or any of those cool places, it just never happened. My cool assignment was Alaska, which was a lot of fun.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, Alaska's awesome, for sure. It was. And
1: I had a couple uh, really cool jobs in the military. At one point, I was a chaplain assistant. I thought, man, it'd be really cool to be a chaplain. But That was, I didn't think it was that cool after I learned a little bit more about it (laughs) and went from there to actually did investigations for several years for the military and counterintelligence. And then I kind of found my calling and I spent my last about five years in teaching and facilitating future leaders. So I spent about five years doing that, which was absolutely my calling. I still use a lot of that today when I'm working with veterans.
0: Okay. And then your, did that guide, just being in the military, did that guide your your education as far as what you wanted to focus on? Yeah, and it
1: absolutely did. I So to be fair, I started my education solely because it looks good on your military resume, especially as a young enlisted guy. It looks good to have some semblance of a degree. So I went and got through the Community College of the Air Force, got an associate's degree, ended up getting three associate's degrees through them, which was fun. It was, you know, just to kind of learn where I wanted to go. And then I proceeded to get my bachelor's and then my master's through the military, and I'm in the PhD program now.
0: Oh, nice. And uh, what's the focus of the PhD program? Uh, It'd be psychology, just general psych. Nice and yeah. so, what do you want to be when you grow up? <laughs>
1: I'm doing it. I, I'm already retired. So I, I, you know, I did 20 years in the military. I'm retired. Uh, now I get did not know that this would have been my dream job, but I landed with a veteran support organization working on their mental health team, and it is absolutely. I can't see myself doing anything else.
0: That's awesome. So, but you're not. I want to be clear that you're though you're focusing on psychology, you're not a therapist, right?
1: No, not at all. I uh, I, I thought about that for a while and was originally in my master's for clinical psych. And when I got to the point where I would kind of observe some things, I'm like, I, I can't, you know, I, to be fair, I had some of my own issues from the military, from my service, where I had some minor issues with PTSD and things of that nature. And I realized that me kind of sitting on the couch across from somebody or vice versa, somebody sitting on the couch across from me was just not conducive to the growth I wanted in my life. But then I found that because I enjoyed facilitating so much and leading groups at doing that and teaching coping skills and resiliency and using the education I had not towards Counseling, but towards educating others yeah. is absolutely where I want it to be.
0: Yeah. So you're still helping uh, veterans progress through different issues that they're wrestling with, but it's not maybe not in the traditional mental health avenue, right?
1: Absolutely. And when I say I landed my dream job, I work, like I said, for a veteran support organization and we run these uh, five day retreats that are adventure based. So we get to do some really cool things. I joke around that I get paid to zip line and kayak and do ropes courses. But in the midst of that, obviously, we're teaching resiliency skills, we're teaching coping skills, we're talking about them, different ways they can go through therapy, different ways they can help themselves, we're goal setting with them, all of those types of And so in that respect, I am doing my dream job. I get to have a lot of fun, but I also get to educate and help others on their path.
0: Yeah. So here's maybe a left turn I want to take for a minute is this of concept of like retreats and experiential you know efforts of of helping individuals heal and, and progress through mental health because i think it's easy in our society you, there's sort of this stigma of like a default stigma of being like okay you have ptsd you have depression you have these issues you need to go talk with a counselor sit down and talk through it right, right. which again that may be part of the the recipe of of, of recovery or or healing like and so then the more i've experienced sort of these in person retreat experiences, the more I realize that, you know, this is something, maybe a direction that leading saints needs to explore and and maybe provide different retreats or experiential opportunities. So, like, what would you say to someone, and you can even keep it in the context of maybe a veteran who is struggling, like, why can't I just send this poor soul to to a mental health counselor? And isn't that enough?
1: And I think they're, each person is different, right? So I think uh, in one respect, we want to sometimes, especially in church leadership, when there's not a lot of of training or whatever, we want to kind of paint everybody with one brush. Okay, go to therapy, you'll be good. Well, just like there's different types of learners, right? You've got people who learn auditory, visual, tactile, there's different types of people and how they respond to therapy. I will tell you the ones that I've worked with that have been the most successful have gone on retreats with us and done therapy. Or gone on retreats with us and done impatient. There, there's a, a combination of things, but there's also something to be told about when you do the experiential education type retreats. There's something to be told about camaraderie, and especially when you're working with veterans. They typically that's what they miss. They miss the camaraderie of being in a unit and having guys that you know. We use the term having guys that have your six, that have your back. And when that happens, when they get taken away from that, that's a big part that they miss. And so when we put them back in with other other veterans yes there's a lot of magic that happens on the happens on the retreat through the experiential education through briefings through debriefings and those types of things but i think some of the really cool magic happens when they get home and they have a facebook group together or they have a you know a groupme set up with each other one of the coolest things i ever saw happen was a group we took out in uh, the summer of i wanna say 2017 so it's been a while I ended up following one of them on Facebook, which I don't typically do because I want to keep that line separate. Somehow I ended up following one of them. And over Thanksgiving, I saw that this was a couple's retreat. I saw that six of the couples had all gotten together for their Thanksgiving holiday. Oh, cool. That's a big part of where the magic happens is that camaraderie. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so these retreats are for individual veterans and also couples that, veteran couples, not that both of them are veterans, but.
1: One of them is. And we actually, uh, the organization I work for recently started doing it for family support members as well. And just this summer, we started doing them for full families. So I got to be a part of one of those where we did. The kids had to be ages eight and up, conveniently linked to the age of baptism. But I didn't share that with them, obviously. Yeah. But the kids yeah. had to be ages eight through eighteen, and we had uh, about thirty people on each one. So whatever family composition that looked like, whatever number of families that was. So we do them for individuals, couples, family support members, or you know, if you're in the military, they call them dependents. Not a huge fan of that term, but family support members, and then families as well. Yeah. And the individuals, we do male and female. And we've run a couple co-ed as well.
0: Nice. So talk to me about, you know, this concept of, of having a unit and like brotherhood or, you know, and I realize, you know, not all veterans are, are male, but like creating a unit where, you know, especially, for, you know, drawing upon your experience, not only as a veteran, but also as a seven time elders quorum president. Like how can <laughs> we stimulate this type of connection of being like a, a unit in a in an elders quorum or in a relief society?
1: I think one of the things that, I always go back to is trust. You know, when I was deployed in whatever job it was, probably more heavily in some of my counter intel stuff, we really had to rely on each other. We really had to, you know, there's a term that says, I've got your six, yeah. I've got your back. That's a lot of veterans say that. We had to do that. That wasn't an option. You know, if we were going to a city in Iraq that we hadn't you know, been in yet or something of that nature, we had to trust each other. And I think sometimes in Elders Quorum and Relief Society, they don't do that. They just go to church together and maybe occasionally meet during the month or during the week. And there's not a semblance of trust where we're open and vulnerable with each other enough to say, look, I need you to have my back. And I need you to be able to call me if something's, I need to be able to call you or you call me if something's going on. It was nothing, you know, when I was in Afghanistan, it was nothing for me to walk into somebody's tent and say, bro, I'm having a problem back home, or I'm struggling with this because we wanted to help each other. I don't know how comfortable I would be doing that. My Elders Corps I'm in now is great. I think there's a few guys I would be now, but some of my previous ones, I wouldn't be comfortable doing
0: that. Yeah. And I guess, you know, with the military, naturally there's, you know, there's a battlefield that you end up, that you're all on as a unit together, you know, and and that requires, you you can't, you know, trust can't just be this passive thing. It's like, no, we're literally in a war going out to battle or we have this mission and we have got to figure out the trust concept or this is going to not even... You know, work at all, right? And yeah, absolutely. And a lot of times, it, maybe it's hard to to formulate that in the context of like this church group, where it's like, I don't know, you, I don't know, you mean I can come over and rake your leaves? Is that good enough? And but it, that just doesn't match the dynamic that maybe the military experience provides, which I don't think anybody necessarily wants to walk onto a battlefield, but just sort of this joint effort that they're moving into, right? right. Which is hard to formulate outside of of the military.
1: Right. And and I don't think it's impossible, but I think if I had to use a term, I think it starts with vulnerability. Yeah. And if we're willing to be open with each other. So I recently I recently got called as a first counselor in the Elders quorum, but before that I was a uh, instructor. The most chill calling I've ever had. I loved it. Taught two Sundays a month, no other responsibility. <laughs> Absolutely cherish that calling, but I just got called as a first counselor. We had a new Elders quorum president called, and he asked me if I would still continue to teach. And I said, Sure. I mean, you know, is there any reason you can't call anybody else? He said Tell me how many times in two years of teaching you've gotten through a whole lesson. And I said, I usually don't get through the first two or three quotes. And he said, why is that? Because we talk, Uh because we try to connect, because we're vulnerable with each other. And that starts with whomever's leading the group. In this case, with me teaching, I would have no problem sharing stories about the struggles I've had, sharing stories about my triumphs and my failures, and then opening it up for others. But I think a lot of times as leaders, we get very uncomfortable with silence. And silence scares us. You know, we're asking a question and nobody's answering in two or three seconds. We need to fill in that void. But if we were to wait a little bit and let people open up to us, it's amazing what that does. And I think in the military, especially when we go deployed, especially when we go deployed, there's that vulnerability because a lot of us are away from our families. And it does suck, but it's some of the best suck you'd ever had.
0: (laughs) Nice. So, I mean, how would you coach someone like an instructor on stimulating that vulnerability in a elders quorum setting?
1: Sure. I think my first thing would be one, show it. Mm-hmm. show it yourself. don't be afraid to show it yourself and that's where you have to have to call the right instructor. Even when I was elders quorum president years ago, I said the one thing I always wanted to make sure is that if somebody walked into our quorum to a meeting to a lesson or anything that they enjoyed it And it wasn't this uh, if you saw the movie years ago the RM oh yeah if you remember that movie when those used to come out and they walked into elders quorum and they're like who has the lesson and it was just terrible reading from a book. I never wanted that experience. I always want the experience to be one us sitting in a circle, not in rows where you can't see each other and hear each other, and the instructor being part of that circle and only standing up when they need to get control of it. But to me, it's asking the right type of questions, right? You don't need to ask questions that are one word answers. When you do that, you're not opening up any conversation. You need to ask questions about, you know, how did you feel about that? What did that make you think of? You know, when you read that passage, what jumped out at you? And when they give you the one word answer, okay, why? You have to go a little deeper than that. And being willing to also let people be wrong because in truth i don't think you are wrong in church if you answer a question it's your answer it's how it made you feel so when you ask a question about how did this make you feel or what did you think about you can't be wrong with that answer because it's your thoughts it's your feelings and it creates some great conversation when you allow people to do that
0: yeah yeah the circle like in my opinion like don't sleep on the circle this is like crucial stuff and so so when you stand up and you're teaching you just invite everybody to circle up is that
1: yeah. So I go, I'll go in and set up elder Storm ahead of time as a circle. Oh, okay. okay very, set it up ahead of time. And when I say, when I stand up, what I do is I'll use kind of body language to get control of something. So if somebody's carrying on a little bit or whatever, I'll stand up and just kind of walk a little bit closer to them. Uh-huh. And that kind of lets them know, okay, he's ready to go to the next point. And even if I'm not ready to go to the next point, I'm ready for that person to kind of stop and let's advance to somebody else. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So and you'll yeah, be constantly. standing and sitting throughout the, throughout the lesson. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: And even the concept of, I hate to say this, please forgive me, but you know, we have people that will drone on in a lesson. They'll just go on and on. And one of the things I learned to do when I was facilitating in the military is if somebody says something that could get you back on track, it's okay to interrupt them and go, oh my gosh, yes, you just said that. And that is such a good point. And I want to throw it over to here when this person said this, because it connects and you're interrupting them, you're cutting them off, but you're making them feel good because you're taking what they said and bringing it into the lesson. Right.
0: Yeah. yeah, And I think as they sort of pick up on your cadence or not, over time, it's not going to feel like he interrupted me. You know, that that's mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And the thing with the circle, I mean, a few years ago when it was like, it became like a normal, like something that was uh, like first Sunday, you're supposed to circle up and have a discussion or whatever. And there was so much resistance to that. And I get it. Like, it's nice to just sort of be in rows and not have to look at people or whatever. But man, and it's hard to say, all right, circle up. And I remember I was the elder quorum president that time. And I remember that you just feel the resistance. Like, oh, I got to want to circle up. But once you get them there, it shifts the dynamic. And it's so worth it to be in yeah. that that place. So how many...
1: Uh, Even say if you are in a uh, elder's quorum that meets in the high council room, uh-huh. don't. Yeah. You know, we did that in one of my areas because it was the only room available. And uh, it was, you know, the older guys were sitting around the table. The younger guys were all sitting around the outside of the room. And it was just, there was still a divide. This was shortly after we went to combine from elders quorum, high priest. And I was the high priest group leader. And so just got called as the elders quorum president as well. And it was, I finally said, okay, we've got to meet somewhere else. Like we have to have somewhere else. So we would just meet on the stage in the chapel. At least then nobody was better than anybody. Like the people sitting at the table (laughs) weren't better than those around the table type.
0: Things. Oh man, so true. I don't know what sort of deal we get on these huge Cadillac tables, but let's get rid of them. Like that's so 1980s. We're done. Let's move on. We can have a high council meeting without a big table in the room and nobody's going to get hurt. Yes. <laughs> so, I don't know about nobody getting hurt. I mean, if you start
1: to fall asleep, it might it might right, Yeah,
0: right. But man, it's just this this way that we there's always a table and it's like, "Why do we have a table?" Anyways, I'm getting off off track, of course, but okay. All right, Rich. So let's just talk about the concept of, of veterans. And, and you, maybe let's talk with, let's start with you. Like you reached out to me initially that intrigued me enough to now we're, we're actually doing interviews. So what was your intent of reaching out and, and the purpose and topic that maybe you you hoped we'd cover?
1: So I think for me, it was now that I'm in a, specifically in an area where there's a lot of veterans. I'm just outside of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, One of the largest army posts. And I'm an Air Force guy, which doesn't always resonate with everybody, but that's okay. Uh, We all love each other, but we definitely give each other a lot for it. But to me, I'm very close with our Bishop. We're very good friends. We go on double dates with our our wives. We went to a concert together last week. So we get along really well. And I noticed for him, it was a little bit harder to connect with the veterans. And so it kind of like, hey, Rich, can you help me with this? Or, Or, hey, Rich, what do you think about this? And I realized that if you're not really in that community, You don't know a lot about it. Mm -hmm. And so obviously my assumption, of course, assumption is that it wouldn't be just unique to being where I'm at. Maybe there's a little bit more where I'm at because of it. And so I really started to talk to some of the other leaders that I know in the church and said, hey, how much do you know about things like PTSD, things like VA disability ratings? How much do you know about that if you're working with a veteran? And and the common thread was, well, nothing unless I Google it. And, And so I thought, you know, this is a population within the church that could probably benefit and as I talked with some of my friends who were veterans, I remember of the church, some of them are really struggling and they're really struggling finding their footing back in church, not necessarily with their testimony, but with, as I'm sure, you know, once you start to struggle finding your footing in the church, it's hard to keep your testimony up. Yeah. When you start to feel like you don't belong in your ward because you think you're different or you think there's problems that you're having that nobody else is dealing with. It becomes very, very, very close to starting to lose your testimony. Yeah. It's a very slippery slope at that point. Yeah.
0: So just to lay lay out the the field here, so there are wards with that are almost that are known as a military ward, right? There maybe they're right next to a base or whatever, and there's just a lot of active serving military, and then veterans and all the mix, and then there's a, maybe a, a handful or a, a percentage of them that are just happen to live in the area, and he's an accountant, and you know the
1: right, right right, and I, and I would say I think that's uh pretty accurate, you know, we were in one ward where I would say as a I was the eldest Corps president and we're looking through the roles and we were probably 75% military. And of the 25% left, you know, good five to 10% of them were veterans. And so you're imagining as an eldest corps president trying to do home teaching back in the day with people moving every couple of years and yep. trying to keep ward callings up. So there are definitely wards that are a higher percentage military. And those are usually situated right around the base. Right.
0: And a lot of those, when they're like influenced a lot by the military you get you get a lot of turnover because usually it's about every three years that there's some type of rotation on right. where they're where they're based out of right
1: right and we typically call it uh it's usually the summer and we call it pcs season pcs permanent Change of station and so that's when people are coming and going and uh you know i was in a bishopric in one of those wards and it was to say it was a nightmare the first uh i got called in like january into the bishopric it was my first bishopric i'd been in a branch presidency before and he, I remember Bishop telling me, Hey, it's coming. Just get ready. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, just trust me. And we just had this exodus of people and just calling, sitting vacant. And he goes, no, no, we'll be good. Just give it a month. And sure enough, about a month later, we had
0: a whole new crop of people come in. Oh, interesting. So there's like a lull there. It's, uh,
1: <laughs> At that particular base there was because okay. it was a, that base was a school. There was a lot of education stuff that went out oh, there. So people would come there for a year to do their, it was an officer training school. And they'd come there for a year to do that school and then they'd leave. So there was always about a month, month and a half gap between when students would leave and they would come in. But that was such a huge part of our population that it always took a
0: hit. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're also talking to those that, you know, they may be in, in Utah or somewhere that, and they just happen to have a veteran in, in the ward, right? And yeah, absolutely. yeah. okay. And absolutely. any other general dynamic that would be worth framing before we, we jump in? You
1: no, know, I, I think- knowing a little bit of the veteran's background. And um, for example, if you talk to me and my wife, my wife was with me for, I got married in 2000. So she was with me for 15 years of my military career, right? So she experienced her own type of issues because I left probably eight or nine times in those 15 years, uh, you know, for Mm -hmm. for anywhere from three months to six months to nine months. And so I think it just, knowing the dynamic of the family as well can help because there's also several veterans who maybe have married their spouse afterwards, And so their spouse knows absolutely nothing of military life. And that's another dynamic that I think can be very hard to work with as well. Yeah.
0: So, and there's all sorts of topics to cover or dynamics to consider where it's, you know, we got deployments. There's also the PTSD factor there, you know, mental health factor and even the transient factor that they, they they're there and maybe they're healthy and doing fine, but they're going to be gone in 18 months, you know, or whatever it'd be. So what would you say is... Uh like where do you want to start on that?
1: Sure. I think if if we're going to really go down a, a certain rabbit hole I'd like to focus a little more on veterans okay. and you know how does a bishop or a leader in the ward elder's quorum president relief society president how do they work with their families that are veterans and how do they make them feel or help them feel not make them how do they help them feel included? Right.
0: And just I'm gonna, I'm completely naive when it comes to military stuff. Obviously when you say veteran this is somebody who is no longer in the military in any way. Right. Okay. And veteran status is if you've
1: served you know, for four days and were injured in basic training and had to get out, you're still a veteran. It doesn't matter the length of service. You know, I did, uh, you can retire after 20 years. I did 20 years and like four days. I did not to get my retirement, but you know, if you served four years, you're still a veteran.
0: Yeah. And there's a lot like, uh, for instance, you hear a lot of uh, like dentists, right. Who went through the military to gain their dental credentials and whatnot. Like typically they go through their schooling and then they're sort of under the military for like four years or something, right? And then they're released to just go be a dentist, right?
1: Yeah. And there's a lot of um, kind of the professional side of the military, doctors, dentists, chaplains fall under that as well, where they'll do a handful of years, whether it's to get their education, get experience, and then they go kind of right back into the into the civilian world. Gotcha. All right. So where do we start with, we're just talking about veterans. Yeah. So I think one of the first things I would start with is just kind of knowing some common things, right? We talked a little bit about What type of veteran are you dealing with? Meaning, how long did they serve? Were they in a couple of years? Were they a combat veteran? Did they they see combat? Did they serve in Iraq, Afghanistan, Uh, Bosnia? Again, I'm a little bit older. So, Bosnia, knowing that, I think makes a difference. Uh, What did they see? Also, are they retired? So, I think for Bishop, especially if you're talking about any type of financial need or financial assistance, knowing if they're retired and they're receiving some sort of a pension. For me, retired at 20 years, so my pension was 50% of my highest rank but also knowing about things like VA disability. And I'm definitely not an expert in that area, but if you were injured in the service, you will get a compensation check from the VA for the rest of your life as well. So I think from that perspective, kind of knowing what type of veteran you're dealing with first and foremost helps. And when I say that, I mean things like, especially combat veteran versus maybe non-combat veteran or knowing if they're dealing with PTSD or, or survivor's guilt or moral injury or anything like that.
0: Yeah. And so what does that? Uh, what can we learn just like from the first visit, right? This veteran family moves in the ward. Of course, you know we're doing our weekly visits. We end up on their couch, and I mean, what type of information or questions can we ask to get the right information out of them that's going to help us better minister to them?
1: Absolutely, and I think the, the easy thing is, you know, if, if they open up to you and say, "Yeah, I was in the military," awesome. Tell me a little bit about that. How, how long were you in for? What did you do? Where did you serve? And just getting to know them a little bit. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about vulnerability they're not going to open up with anything major whether it's PTSD or or survivor's guilt or anything like that they're not going to open up with that until they actually know that you care so talking to them about their military service oh where did you serve how long were you in for if they're married you know were you were you guys married when you were in the service did you do deployments together just kind of general conversations and one thing i think that especially if somebody who's non-military it's okay to not know something right and i think sometimes people struggle with that with i need to know how to say the right thing I'd rather you say, hey, I know nothing about the military, man. Tell me about your 20 years in. What did that look like? I'd rather hear that than you try to make up something that you saw in a movie or
0: or whatever. Yeah. And that's where even with the, uh, I should probably Google it and at least spend a few minutes with it. Even with like the different ranks, like colonel, private, or I mean, all those things. I don't even know what (laughs) what that means or who ranks above what. So I'm always like, so does that mean you're a big deal or, (laughs) you know?
1: You know, and then that's actually a pretty pretty fair way to say that because it is, there's such a difference in rank to do well. And uh, whether it's social status, whether it's money, whether it's retirement, there's such a difference in, you know, if you retired out as an enlisted, who was a E6 Sergeant versus an officer who was a O5 Lieutenant Colonel, there is a huge difference there. And so even
0: knowing some of those little things can help. Yeah. Yeah. That's helpful. I mean, I guess you're just building a relationship of trust, right? And And you do that right. with anybody, right? But I guess I wonder if some people are like afraid to ask the wrong thing, or they don't want to like stir up feelings of like, oh, you were in Iraq, so like tell me about that, and it's like was the most traumatizing event of their life, and so it's like, oh, well, I don't, maybe I shouldn't even mention it, or and so we sort of just move on to the kids and the dog, and
1: <laughs> right. Well, and I, I think too, what I would do is, well, I'm a veteran, so I think you could ask different questions, veteran to veteran. But when our bishop came over to our house, he figured out I was a veteran. I don't know how, because I don't have anything like on the wall. Maybe the beard screams veteran, I don't know what it is, but figured out I was a veteran we talked about. And he just asked me some general questions. He never went down any real, real deep rabbit holes. It was just getting to know me. And then I think the other thing is recognizing, and this will help some people, that is a part of who you are, but it's not all of who you are. And so I remember moving into the first ward after I got out of the military, the first ward I moved into when the bishop came to visit, that's all he talked about was military. And I'd only been out like a month. So I'm like, dude, is that all I am? Like, Mm -hmm. is is all I am a retired military guy now? Mm -hmm. And so I think also asking about other aspects of their life that aren't military and you'll learn something because if they have trouble talking about that, there's probably something a little bit deeper there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then uh, let's move on. Like what's the, what's any other like dynamic that we should consider as we're getting to know them or maybe as they're established in the ward?
1: You know, I think uh, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but what's their relationship to their spouse? Was their spouse a part of their deployments? Were their kids a part of their deployments? One of the funny stories I like to tell, my youngest was born, uh, so she's 12 now, or going to be 12 in a couple weeks. She was born when I was an educator in the military. And, and as a facilitator and an educator, I didn't deploy. I may go to like another class for a couple of weeks and go teach at a different school, but my last five years in, I didn't deploy because I had that specific role. She was born during those last five years. So she knew nothing of me going for four or five, six months at a time. She knew nothing about that. So I get this new job and I travel, you know, a week or two a month, maybe depending, less around the holidays, whatever. I did my first like week trip and she's like ball her eyes out. Like, no dad, don't leave. And it was, and then my oldest one I was like, well, you suck it up. <laughs> like he's been gone for months on end. And so I think sometimes even knowing where the kids stand, if, if they have kids, even knowing where they stand helps out as well, Yeah, because there's just differences
0: there. Yeah. And, you know, with veterans, obviously they've, they've moved on from the military and I mean, do most generally have, a, I would imagine they have a pretty effective time, you know, finding additional work or t- moving on with their life or how do you so help us better? That's them? actually probably one of the biggest problems. Okay. Uh, I'm being sincere. You've got a couple who,
1: they struggle moving past the military, right? They, they went in at 18. Uh, myself, I went in at 19 and it's all they really knew. They grew up in the military, so to speak. They became a man in the military, a woman in the military. That's all they knew. And so finding life outside of that can become very difficult. Mm -hmm. One of the things we're taught in the military, every branch, is what our values are. They tell you these are your core values, right? For me in the Air Force, it was integrity, integrity first, service before self, excellence and all we do. Those were my three core values. So that's what I lived and breathed in everything I did. And now I get out and that's not it anymore. I have to figure out who I am dependent or, or independent of what they told me to be. And a lot of people struggle with that. One of the things I think being a member of the church, I learned other values. I learned other things that I value that weren't just integrity first, service before self, excellence in all we do. I learned other values, faith, spirituality, family, humor. I, you know, I love to make people laugh, right? So I started to lean, I struggled for a little bit when I got out. Even though I landed a good job, I struggled for a little bit just to figure out who I was if I wasn't Sergeant Watson anymore. Yeah. Right. But once I realized that I had all these other values that to be fair, I maybe even was ignoring a little bit when I was in the military. And I started shifting to those values versus the values I was told to have. My life changed completely and I'm significantly happier now. But a lot of people can't make that disconnect because they don't know what their values are because they've been told these are your values. And they've been doing that for 10, 15, 20 years
0: and it's served them well. Yeah. Does the military do anything to sort of prep people for, for leaving the military to sort of deal with that or any life transitions like that? They
1: do. They take you through what's called, um, in the air force it was called TAF, transition assistance program. Okay. And you go through, um, I went through it twice. I went through once at my one year mark. And, uh, between those periods, I'd actually finished my master's degree. So they'd wanted me to go through again, because it puts me in a little bit of a different, different playing field, getting out, having a master's versus not, And so I went through it twice and I will tell you it was really good information. I didn't pay attention to any of it. It was just, I was being told to go. So I went, but in my mind, I'm good. I've got an education. I've done 20 years in the military. Everybody's going to be knocking down my door to hire me. That was not the case.
0: So you sort of Uh, wish that you paid better attention then.
1: I do. And and I mean, I don't want to say I got lucky because I hate that term saying I got lucky, but uh, things did line up for me. Um, But when I say they lined up at the last minute, I got offered my job in April and I was retiring in May. Mm. So, you know, it, it, it was a little bit difficult yeah. and there, you know, there are veteran organizations out there that will help you with work that will help you with resume writing and all of that. And I think more people need to take advantage of those because we have a hard time translating our military skills into civilian skills. I had jobs that did translate easily, whether it was facilitating, whether it was counterintel, those types of things translated easy into the civilian world. But if you are you know, missile guy in the air force, How does that translate into the outside, right? So those types
0: of things can be difficult. And I don't want to, you know, draw any inappropriate parallels here, but this is a a greater principle and concept that I've spent a lot of time thinking about figuring out how best we can help with this dynamic through leading saints in terms of, of church leadership, where I was sort of on this intense leadership experience, you know, being a bishop for five years and, and bishoprics before that, and then in state presidencies and then all, all that ended, it was like, I didn't, I could have never anticipated how much that impacted me because it's like my identity over a weekend was ripped away. And it's like, isn't this great that you're not in leadership, but it's, it was, I was in it for so long that it's like all I knew, right? It was like, no, I am Bishop Frankum. I am Kurt or I'm a president Francom. I don't know how to be brother Frankum on Sundays. And so I think I'm still dealing with it to some extent here where I'm just like, I can't, it's so hard for me to be the passive, Member at church, right? And so, right. and this is happening maybe even on a greater scale with the veterans where they're just like, I don't know how to function in this world. I know it's easy, it looks easy to everybody out there, but I'm just kind of screaming inside, right?
1: Right. And I think it's, you know, to use a leadership analogy, I've had friends get out that were, you know, 25 years in the military, they're E7s, E8s, they're commanding and in charge of multiple people. And then maybe they didn't get their education when they were in. So they come out and they're working for, you know, a 26 year old kid who they were commanding two weeks before, you know? And so it is a very difficult thing. And I think one of it is we become very tied up in our identities, whether it's as a veteran or whether it's as a state president or a bishop or or whatever, we become very, very tied up in our identities. And there's a a concept in psychology. It's actually an acceptance and commitment therapy. It's self as context versus self as content, Mm. right? And we start to view ourselves as the content of our story, not as the context of our story right? And you think about like a, a Harry Potter book, the content is each and every chapter. But if you were to take a chapter out of it, it really wouldn't change the context of the book. It's a book about a wizard. Uh-huh. That's not going to change. But we do that in our lives. We become so defined by the one thing, I'm a veteran, I'm a bishop, I'm a state president, whatever, that we forget all these other things that also make us up. And it's just one piece of content. But When you focus so heavily on that, then you start attaching that label to everything. I'm not a father. I'm a veteran, or I'm a veteran who's a father. I'm a veteran who's a husband. I'm a bishop who's a husband. No, you you start to get that title becomes everything to you. Yeah. And when you do that, you lose a part of yourself. You start to no longer know who you are because you only know that person. And with veterans, you can even go down the 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 rabbit hole of being a disgruntled veteran, right? That's a label and a title mm-hmm. that you're assigning to yourself, and that's not a good good way to live. Regardless of whether you're a veteran or whether you're you know it's a church leadership or even. When people retire from their jobs it's the same thing yeah
0: so what do you do with that like how do you lead someone through that both you know just from your own personal and professional background and also you know what can a church leader do to help somebody through that process of as their their identity is shifting
1: so i think there's a couple of things first and foremost is not to quote simon Sinek, but figure out your why right what is your why and if your why is being a veteran and being in the military okay we need to try to figure out a way to adjust that Or if your why is being the stake president, we're going to have to figure out a way to adjust that because that's not always going to be there, right? You know, I always kind of joke around, you can be the stake president and tomorrow be the nursery leader. That's how this church works, right? You can be uh, E8 commanding a whole bunch of troops and tomorrow you're out and you have nothing. So you, if you're tied up in that one identity, so one of the things we do is find out what your why is. And that's why I talk to people a lot about values. What is it that you actually value? And if you don't know what it is, you know, go to, there's a, a VIA, a values and action quiz online. There's so many different types of values quizzes you can take that will help you determine or at least see, here's where I should be focused. So once we figure that out is what is it that you actually value? Okay, now what can we do to work towards that? Right. And is there a way you can utilize that in a job market? Is there a way you can utilize that with your family to make that more part of you? But I think it really just boils down to, for me, is helping people see that their value as an individual, as a person, is not tied up with any one thing. And that takes time because, like you said, you know, it's still sometimes you still think about it like I'm just, just brother Frank. I'm, now, I'm not president. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. And I love that. And that, you know, connecting to the acceptance commitment therapy where it's just this process of saying, okay, you enjoyed, like for one thing, one thing I realized about a year into not being in these leadership roles, I had this sort of this epiphany, this realization that I had no friends. And of course, yeah I, I, yeah, I have friends and I could call people, but but it was this, the fact that I didn't have this set rotation of every week I go to this church building and hang out with some of my closest brothers and we talk about really interesting problems and we help the local area progress you know, through the church, right? right. And so the value there wasn't that, you know, the value was brotherhood, connection, right? And so it's not that... Right. I need that calling so that I can get get that value. It's like, well, what are some other things that I could do to get connection, to have brotherhood, and to still experience that value, right?
1: Right, absolutely. And I think to that extent, you know, in some cases that could be your value. Your value could be leadership, right? That could be one of your values, mm-hmm. and that's okay too. You just have to figure out where else you can find it. Right. You know, you don't have to be a leader to lead. One of the great things I love to do is is I get a lot of people, whether it's from church or even even from my uh, my work and my life experience. I love mentoring people. I think it's just one of the greatest things we can do as individuals is to help mentor people to reach their potential. And I do that with people at work. I do it with people at church and I just do it because it fills my cup because that is one of my values is leadership. It's not my top four, but I think it's my fifth value hmm. is leadership. And so if I get that opportunity to lead and guide others, I don't need a calling to do that. I don't need a position at work to do that. I just need somebody willing enough to let me lead them. But that starts by me showing them that example.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Man, there's, that's such a fascinating concept. And one, I think we're just scraping the surface, you know, as far as leading yeah. saints is concerned. But I just like when I hear, like I just had a, a two stakes ago that I lived in. I just heard that they, my old bishop was just called as the stake president. And I knew the stake president a little bit. And my first thought was my heart just went to that outgoing stake president thinking, and maybe I should reach out. Like nobody knows the paddle that he's facing right now. And he's just supposed to act like, yeah, it's great. I don't have to do anything anymore. Like, no, you actually have a lot of values tied to this identity and that can be hard, you know, to transition out of that. But.
1: Well, and it's a sense of fulfillment too, yeah. whether that, whether it's being in the military, it doesn't matter. It's a sense of fulfillment. And, you know, as state president, state presidency, bishopric, People are shaking your hand when you walk through the door. People are, are happy to see you for whatever reason. The same in the military. You know, thank you. you walk around in uniform. Thank you for your service. Yeah. We appreciate your... I loved hearing that. There are some guys who don't like it. I cannot figure out why for the life of me. I loved hearing it because I knew it was genuine and I appreciate
0: it. By the way, Rich, it. thanks for your service. <laughs> I should have started with that.
1: <laughs> That's okay. But I think it's one of those things where when you get tied up in that identity, there's a little bit of level of stature that comes with it, Validation, that, right? You see, you right? Walk, validation. Yeah. You walk a little taller walking into the chapel knowing you're the bishop. For knowing you're the stake president, and when that gets taken away, it's hard. It's very difficult. Even you know, like I said, I've never been a bishop, but even being in the bishopric, I remember. Just quick story: we were in Alabama, we were stationed there, and my son was getting baptized. I was in the bishopric, and when I tell you, we packed out the chapel for my son's baptism. It was insane. Fast forward a couple years later, I'm no longer in a bishopric, and my daughter's getting baptized, and like ten people showed up. Oh wow! (laughs) And it was just kind of one of those. Okay, this is why Mm -hmm. you know. It is what it is.
0: Yeah. Anything else as far as that transition uh, that we haven't mentioned? Or
1: No, I, I just, you know, I really do think when you're coming out of the military, just like you said, with coming out of a calling, recognizing that for some people, there's a level of excitement, but there's definitely probably even more so a level of just being scared, just not knowing what's ahead. And, you know, people assume, oh, you're in the military. You've got this great background. You're going to be set up. That's not always true. And retirement, especially if you retire out as an enlisted guy, their retirement check is not that much. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely not enough to make a living off of. Yeah.
0: And so what I'm learning is just, just being aware, like maybe a new family moves in the ward because they just finished, you know, the, the husband or whatever, just retired from the military. Right. And it's like, yo, oh, great God, you're here. Oh, you're getting a new job or doing another career path. Wonderful. But maybe that elders quorum president could be more aware of being like, actually, I'm going to see if I can connect with him a little more often than others. And just sort of, yeah. You know, prod there like, how's the new job? Like you're, do you miss the military? Like, what's this like? Right. And you're yep. just sort of present there so that when, if he needs, if that battle's happening inside of him and he needs that venting option, maybe you're there to do that. Right. Absolutely.
1: And I think one of the statistics I heard recently, um, and forgive me, I can't quote where, but like I said, we have a whole team with my organization that works with job markets. The average veteran will have three jobs within the first four years of getting out of the oh, whole Wow. Wow. Yeah. wow. Because they're either they're not finding the sense of fulfillment, they took the first job that was offered to them because they were nervous about not having a job, whatever, they'll have three jobs within the first four years. Wow, I count myself lucky I've had the same job. I got out seven years ago. I've had the same job. Very, very lucky with yeah. that respect.
0: But. Yeah. Well, that was great, uh, helpful st- uh, statistic there for sure. All right. What, what's next? Uh, what, what do you want to cover next?
1: No, I think one of the things to talk about is uh, obviously with veterans, there is this, this uh, overarching stigma of mental health. Yeah whether it's PTSD, whether it's, it's survivor's guilt, moral injury, whatever it is, there's a big stigma of mental health. And I think sometimes bishops don't know how to deal with that. And I think that's related to what they see in movies and in media. And, you know, oh, I've got a v- disgruntled veteran. It's going to end terribly. That's not usually the case at all. But I think so. Uh, I kind of like to go down that for a little yeah. bit. If we could.
0: Yeah. And I it's such an important concept because they're, I mean, the, the suicide rates with veterans is just so heartbreaking, right? When when you hear those right. numbers and and uh, there, hopefully there's more we can do there.
1: Right. And, and I think, you know, the, the current uh, is 22 a day, uh, roughly 22 veterans a day commit suicide. And I do believe there's more we can do. And I do believe that starts with connectivity and understanding. Yeah. You know, connecting with the veteran, understanding what they're going through, and even a little bit of understanding, okay, what exactly is PTSD? What does that mean? And how does that manifest itself in different individuals? And what can we do to help that?
0: Yeah. And PTSD does stand for post-traumatic stress disorder, right?
1: Right. And there's a huge shift where people are, are kind of dropping the last part and just just post-traumatic stress. Okay. So yeah. yeah. And that really is, you know it, it's a, it is the same as somebody on the outside. The PTS is not solely linked to the military. I think over the last several years, obviously, it's become a big wave of connecting to the military, but it's really just something that's caused by a traumatic event. And that event kind of lingers with you. It can be a death. It can be a severe injury it could be a sexual assault it can be a, a litany of different things but it presents itself with you know negative memories of the event and that comes up in different patterns and behaviors and kind of knowing what to look for and how to manage through those in my mind for a bishop or for any leader would be key is knowing a few ways to help somebody manage through that
0: yeah now you mentioned sort of how hollywood portrays it you know typically the guy who just he can't even like make himself breakfast in the morning and he can't do this or that he's just a wreck right and i would imagine that exists, you know, that level of PTSD. But is it safe to say even that that veteran that shows up on Sunday and smiles and fulfills a calling and looks like he has his life together, like even he could be experiencing some level of PTSD?
1: Absolutely. And I'll be completely transparent. I was uh, serving in a leadership calling shortly after I got out and I was hiding my, my own struggle. I was hiding my own struggle. I was going to see a therapist. My wife kind of knew it and nobody else knew. My mm. kids didn't know. None of my family knew. Because I was embarrassed. Uh, to be fair, I was embarrassed. I'm like, I'm in the mental health field. I'm a relatively intelligent guy, Use the term relatively lightly. I should know how to do this, right? And I finally went to my bishop and uh, it was mm-hmm. it was an interview with, you know, standard PPI with my bishop for my calling. And I broke down. I started crying right there in the chair. And he she, his face was like, uh, what do I do? And so I'm like yeah. coaching him on how to talk to me. But it was very relieving for me to finally let that out. Yeah. And so, yeah. I was there every Sunday, shirt and tie, full suit, helping lead, helping teach, whatever was needed. Nobody would have known the difference. Right. And there are, there are plenty of veterans who never experience anything, but there are those who will hide it. And then there are those who it's very clear that they're struggling.
0: So help us understand just sort of your personal experience. And I get it probably varies for each veteran. Like, is this, this feeling of, is it connected to the battlefield of some type? Like, do you feel like Something's gonna blow up right by you or like what was it like for you?
1: So it's interesting for me, and again, this is where it's very hard to understand, right? I've been in areas where I had a friend who who we had a mortar hit and he got shrapnel and died right in front of me, right? That for whatever reason, that doesn't bother me. But I also had a deployment where it was the easiest deployment in the world, but we were a forward deployed hospital. And so I spent the bulk of my time at a hospital and the bulk of the people that came in there weren't gonna make it out, right? And mm-hmm. so I was, at the time I was a chaplain assistant, I'd said I'd done that as one of my jobs. My chaplain knew that I was LDS. He knew that I held the priesthood in the church and we got a guy that came in and dog tag said, uh, Latter-day Saints on it. And so he was somewhat coherent, told him I was LDS and ended up giving him a blessing. And he died within like five minutes of that. Right. Oh wow. That's the one I struggle with. Those are the ones that I struggle with. I struggle with what happened when I was at that deployment where I was at the hospital. For some reason for me, I don't struggle with the people I've seen die in the line of duty. Cause to me, and this is just, you know, this is just Rich Watson for what it's worth, that was part of their job. But now I'm seeing them on a hospital bed, dying, giving their last breath. That's the one I struggle with, right? right. And I've learned how to process through that. And honestly, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it anymore. But I mean, it used to wake me up at night. So Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah. So let's go back to your meeting with your bishop and you break down like what I mean, obviously you could sort of put on this pose and, and function. So what was it about that moment that like, was the pressure building inside of you type of thing?
1: Yeah, for me it was. It was, uh, you know, I have a, I love my job, but it does come with stressors. And and to be fair, if I'm a veteran and I was struggling with some of my things, but I'm helping other veterans the whole time, it kind of compounded in that respect. And I had a, you know, I was in school at the time, doing my PhD program and, and a bunch of other things. And I was just done. I was sitting in his office, it was a PPI. And he'd handed me a family that I needed to go visit that he was really worried about. And he'd handed me a bunch of stuff in a folder about this family. I didn't even get to open it. And I just, that was it. For some reason, it was just that moment. And I was like, I'm done. I said, I need to get out of this calling. I need to take a break. And he said, what do you mean take a break? And I just started bawling and just opened up about everything. Some of my experiences, like I said, I was kind of coaching him a little bit on on what to say sometimes. But it was, uh, for me, it was very cathartic because I was the first time outside of my therapist or my wife at the time, my therapist at the time or my wife that I opened up to.
0: Yeah. And was it like a a good release in that moment? Like. It was, it
1: really was. And then of course, you know, you always second guess yourself. So I went home and I'm like, no, I can still do the calling. I'm still, you know, a stalwart member of the church. I shouldn't ask for my release. And, you know, that mentality that I think a lot of us had who kind of are a little bit, you know, in their mid forties in the church, we can't ask to get released from a calling. Yeah, you can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in that moment or in that phase of your life, were you like cognitively, were you saying this is PTSD or did you think it was just- definitely, definitely knew that. And you knew, I mean, in your mind and body, it felt like it was definitely connected to my, to your service in the military. Yeah.
1: And it was, and it was, uh, it was that, it was my own insecurities, a a whole litany of things. And, you know, we all have our coping skills and in that, sometimes in the moment you just forget them. And And that's what that was, but it was also good because to me- even though I was using coping skills, I still wasn't being vulnerable and opening up to anybody other than, like I said, my therapist and my wife. I still, for me, we talked about brotherhood earlier and vulnerability. That's such a huge part of it. If you're not sharing your story with somebody who earnestly has the best in mind for you,
0: I think that's going to hurt you a little bit. You need to have that connectivity with somebody. Okay. So you mentioned coping skills yeah, or coping mechanisms. What were some of the, what did that look like for you?
1: So for me, it was a couple of things. I used to be a competitive fighter. I don't look like it anymore, but right. I used to love um, like mixed martial arts. Uh, in fact, one of my deployments to Iraq, we built a ring in the middle of the desert and uh, we got a little bit of trouble for it, but it was a lot of fun. Um, so <laughs> anyway, so for me, it, it would be to go hit a punching bag was, was one. I always had a punching bag in my garage. That was step one for me. Music is a huge, huge thing for me. 80s rocker. I will listen to Metallica till the day I die probably, but it was it was those types of things. But the other thing was being able to take a step away, and that's something that I think we don't do enough. We get in an argument, we get heated, right? We think of your body like a thermometer. We know when the temperature is rising, and we can usually cut it off at a pretty pretty early point. But if we choose not to, it's just going to get up there up there and explode. And so I started to learn for me, when is my body getting past you know say seventy degrees? When am I getting past that seventy degree point where I need to step away? And my wife and I have really worked, and we've done this with our kids, kind of said, hey, I need to take a moment. And we've agreed with that. Now, the thing is, taking a moment doesn't mean take the rest of the day and ignore the problem, right? Yeah. That, that's not a coping not scope, Trying
0: right? to escape the conversation or right. the tough moment, right? But it's okay to,
1: for me, that was probably my biggest one, you know, physical fitness, music, and then also being able to know when to take a moment. And even sometimes like being in a restaurant that was too crowded and too much noise going on. Hey, I'm gonna to go to the bathroom real quick. Yeah. Um, I just go sit in the bathroom, put my headphones in or whatever, and and just kind of get my wusa on and and go from there.
0: Yeah. So all these things you've described, these are these sound like very healthy coping mechanisms, right? Right. But right. The reality is, sometimes with PTSD and other mental health, there are unhealthy coping mechanisms. Oh, like if someone needs to, they don't know what to do other than to look at pornography. And when they look at pornography, then they can actually relax and, and function and, you know, and move on with their day, obviously not a healthy coping mechanism. So I think I, I bring this up with like coping mechanisms are so important, especially, you know, in mental health and PTSD, but I can see like a Bishop having someone come in and they confess a, a deep, you know, long lasting struggle with pornography. And it's so easy for the Bishop to get hyper-focused on, the behavior, the negative behavior coping mechanism, when in reality, it's the PTSD that is like churning this this machine in them that's leading them that, right. And so if you know they're a veteran and they're struggling with pornography, you know, maybe you can begin to ask some questions about their service and their, you know, yeah. transitioning from the military and what what help they're getting rather than, well just stop looking at the porn, right? Stop looking at porn, right? And I think it's
1: interesting you use that one as an example. Um, I would also say for negative coping skills, you know, pornography, self-medicating, whether it's alcohol, prescription drugs, uh, whatever that may be, because that also, especially for members of the church, that starts kind of that shame spiral where you look at pornography, you feel better in the moment, and then afterwards you feel guilty. And then because you feel guilty, you feel shame. And then because you feel shame, you feel depression. And when really if you would have accepted, you know, the initial emotion of, okay, I, I feel guilty, or even the initial emotion that maybe caused you to look at the pornography or to reach for the bottle, start accepting those emotions versus piling on top of it. That makes a huge yeah. difference.
0: Yeah. And I think it's just so like, to just be aware of what's happening in their life, you know, maybe they maybe they're, they're not a veteran, but they've recently gone through a, a career change or a job change, and maybe it's not going well. And and be like, well, tell me more about that. Like, let's put the pornography aside. We'll get back to it. We'll talk about it. But like, what, what else is going on, right? What's, what's yep. drumming this up? And I would venture to say that most people that have, uh, especially members
1: of the church, and this is generalizing, so forgive me for that. But most people that have, whether it's a pornography addiction or, or alcohol or anything of that nature, at least the reason they got started in it, if you know that, you may be able to help start to work on it a little bit. Yeah. But if all you're doing is focused on the, like you said, focused on the behavior and not the underlying emotions or thoughts, you're missing something.
0: Yeah. And of course, you know, we are always proponents of involving professional counseling and whatnot. And this is sort of like, if there is a negative coping mechanism in their life, or, and and sometimes we frame it just as sin, and they keep going back to the sin, and they're not seeing a counselor, like that's sort of a red flag, right? Like we can meet week after week after week, but I promise you, it's not going to help until you get this professionally addressed as far as, and I don't even know what you're dealing with. You know, I don't know, maybe you don't have this PTSD or this under, you know, under the surface stress or whatever it is like, but let's at least explore that before we just focus on the the quote unquote sin. Right, right.
1: And, you know, and I feel like uh, a lot of times when you focus on the sin, I equate it to growing up Catholic and and going to confession and the priest would just say, okay, say a couple of Hail Marys, do this, do that. You're good to go. And I think that's sometimes as leaders in church, that's how we want to deal with it. Yeah. Like do this, this, and this. And, you know, if you go a month without watching pornography, great. But really then they're going to go, you know, six weeks and they're going to, it's going to hit them again or whatever. They're going to feel guilty. And yeah. because they feel are guilty, they are going to feel shame. And well, I've already done it. I might as well do it again. And so you're not addressing the underlying behavior, which again, sometimes can be linked to PTS or, or a myriad of things.
0: Yeah. So for your personal story, what was it just some of uh, Good consistent counseling that helped you, or how would you say that uh, you've been able to overcome it, or or have you? So I I would say
1: I have for the most part. Occasionally still have nightmares here and there, but I don't know if that's just something that will always be there. To be fair, but I've learned good coping skills. I've learned good communication with especially with my bride. Right, being able to talk to her, she is absolutely amazing. I can't say enough about that woman. She'll notice some of my little tells when I start to like do this with my hands, and she'll say, Hey, you okay? Right. And so there's little things like that. But I think at the end, I don't know that you ever overcome it. I think you learn how to live with it, how to manage it. And I think it becomes less and less at that point. You know, I, it's funny because I'll go months without anything and then I'll just have a weird dream one night and it'll, it'll wake me up, you know, startle me or whatever. Or I'll go months without anything. And then, like I said, my wife and I went to a concert a couple of weeks ago. First time I've ever tried to go to a concert, loved the concert. It was the Goo Goo Dolls. I'm a diehard 90s fan. But I will tell you, if there was a point where I'm like, hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom. And I just walked over to the bathroom and stayed there for like 10 minutes.
0: Uh-huh. So, yeah. And that's all you needed, right?
1: And it was. For me, that was all I
0: needed. Yeah. Really helpful. Anything else as far as mental health concerns or dynamics we haven't touched on?
1: You know, I think there's uh, two things I'd really want to hit on, especially when you're talking about church. We focus a lot on PTS, but there's also two other things you've heard me mention, survivor's guilt and moral injury. Right? And I think that's a big thing. Survivor's guilt really is just that. Somebody who went out with a unit and you know, four or five guys in their unit got killed, they made it back. Yeah. Right? And so there's that guilt of why wasn't it me? And so that's one thing. And then the other thing, and I think this is probably very, very prevalent in church, is moral injury. Now there's a really cool uh, the guy's name's Austin Bowler. Bowler. I may be saying it wrong. No idea this existed, but it's in the uh, gospel library. He wrote a uh, a talk, and I have it written down here, so I'm looking at it, but he wrote an entire paper called Moral Injury and the Atonement of Jesus Christ, LDS Guide for Healing the Wounded Soul. It's in the church. It's in Gospel Library. Never knew this thing existed. Found it about a year ago. Absolutely love it. I would recommend anybody who's in a ward leadership position. So uh, Austin J. Bowler, don't know you if you're listening. One of the best resources I've ever seen as far as the church goes for military.
0: And um, and the talk is in the context of military. Is that Yeah,
1: yeah, it's oh, okay. It's entitled Moral Injury and the Atonement of Jesus Christ, uh, LDS oh, cool. Guide for Healing the Wounded Soul. Awesome. Fantastic. Uh, it's, it's i say, 25 pages, maybe, give or take. It's it's a pretty heavy read, but it is, I think, for church leaders, it's very beneficial.
0: All right, we got um, more for now.
1: That's great. There you go. Oh. There you go. But he does really get into this concept of moral injury. And moral injury really is just that. You've done something, whether it's experiencing or witnessing or doing an act— that you know is inherently wrong, right? Now, for me, this wasn't, I've never had to take anybody's life. I have had to shoot at somebody. Luckily, my aim was good enough that I shot in the sense that they went down, but I didn't kill them. It was more in my role as an investigator, so different story. I've never had to do that. But if you have to do something like take somebody's life, or if you are doing any type of um, anything that you know that transgresses your values, right? You have to live with that. You have to live with knowing I did something that, in my mind, is so inherently wrong because I was told to, and that's really what moral injury is. It goes so far against what you believe, right? We all know you thou shalt not kill, right? But what if you're in a battle and somebody's firing at you? Mm-hmm. Okay, justified, got it, but you still in your mind, I still killed somebody,
0: right? And I, and I would so imagine that, there's there's those scenarios of just like like on paper you did something really bad. Even the military is like, ah oh man, you you didn't handle that well. But the fog of war and everything going on, you're literally in a war and you make a decision. But in hindsight, you just can't help but beat yourself up because you should have done something different, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even, um,
1: you know, the, the one shooting I was involved in, I was completely justified. Guy fired at me first, fired back, didn't kill the guy. Very happy about that. But I had a shooter review board after that. There were so many things I had to go through and it made me question myself. And I'm like, I still kept going back to, no, he fired at you. You're good to go. But even now, I still think about that. I'm like, did I have to shoot the guy? Yeah, I did. But it doesn't change the fact that I knew injuring that person was wrong.
0: Yeah, that's tough. Anything else about like going through that or helping someone, ministering to somebody who's, or, or what does that look like you know, when, they've, when they're out of the military and right. they're trying to live life? You know, I think one of
1: the big things, and I actually talked about this recently, is knowing what not to say. Is probably more important than knowing what to say, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? We have these like canned answers that we like to give. Um, I used one of them here when we were talking. I almost want to apologize for it, but like saying it is what it is, or, you know, somebody else has it worse, or it's not that big of a deal. Get over it, right? We have these kind of canned statements that we like to tell people when they're grieving or when they're struggling with with anything. This is just veterans, obviously. And I will tell you, usually it doesn't help, right? God never said it would be easy. He only said it would be Mm -hmm. worth it. Well, I don't know that he actually said either. And I think we just kind of made right. it up to right. make right. us feel good because we don't know what to say, but it's yeah. okay sometimes to not say anything. Right. Like I'd rather have somebody just sit with me and say, man, I don't know what you're going through, but, but I'm here and just sit with me and just talk with me than try to throw some random, just generic thought out there.
0: Yeah. And it is like this skill that needs to be developed that you know, on day one, you, you may say the wrong thing. Right. But right. Th- just a skill of empathy, like being able to sit with somebody in their struggle, regardless of what it is. And I feel like I'm getting better at this. I'm not quite there yet, but you know, just cause I want to say like, I want to break it down, like into an algebra problem. Like, well, yeah, but have you considered this or that? And, and well, if this would have happened, that would have been really bad. Then you really have something to cry about. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to just be like, wow, like that mm-hmm. is so hard right? And I often use the example of if a friend came to you and was like traumatized that they were abducted by aliens last night. Now, intellectually, you're thinking this person's crazy. Like there's no way you were abducted by aliens. And if I can just convince you that you were abducted by aliens, this goes away. Or you can just say, wow, that would be so traumatizing, to be abducted by aliens. Like, what are you going through right now? Tell me about that, right? And that's what they need Right Is that connection right. to that experience that they're, they're going through, right?
1: Right. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, somebody who is, is struggling with their mental health in any way, shape or form, veteran or not, oftentimes they don't need you to tell them what to do. They don't need you to, to fix it. They just need that empathy, that concern, that compassion, which realistically, if you think about what Christ would do, what would he do? He would put his arm around you and love you, right? He wouldn't tell you, go do this. He would listen to you. He would hear you out. And that's what we need to try to do. We need to just listen, hear people out. And oftentimes I think we'll find that in listening to them, they're going to come up with their own, own solution, if you will. Yeah, And it's way better than what you're going to come up with because they know themselves better than you.
0: Yeah. You know, one very experienced counselor taught me this this just in the last few months. It blew my mind because I did this so much. And and people may agree with me, but like, for instance, in the bishop's office, like your experience, you break down your crying. Now, what's what's mm-hmm. always on the bishop's, or Bishop's desk is a box of Kleenexes, right? And there's sort of this feeling of I'm going to be compassionate by giving them a Kleenex. And this therapist, Tommy said, never, ever, ever give somebody a Kleenex. If they ask for a Kleenex, yeah, give them a Kleenex. But there's this message we're giving of by handing them Kleenex, it's like clean yourself up. You should not be crying. You're a mess, right? I and mean, yeah. of course we, we don't want that, but just and so I've I've sort of practiced this. Not that I'm in these scenarios as much anymore, but when somebody cries, just to be there and just like you know, what, you can cry. And yeah. and I go back to that example, your example of just being that leader, saying like, you know, Rich, you can come to this office anytime, any day, and we can just cry, and that's yeah. okay. And yeah, we'll figure out the calling thing, whatever. But right now, I think it's just fine that you cry and let's yeah. cry, you know. And and just like saying that to someone, like it brings emotion up in me where I'm just like. I just want to cry with you now. Like, let's just yeah. cry, you know? And that's, it's so simple, but it's so, sometimes it's hard to do in the moment. Cause you're just like, I don't want Rich to cry. Rich, <laughs> stop crying. Like, let's be happy. Like Jesus, let's think about yeah. Jesus. Like then we won't cry cause he's such a happy thing. Right. <laughs> Anyways,
1: Oh man. You know what though? And that goes into everything. I was on a, uh, a retreat not too long ago and we were doing this, this high ropes course. And uh, one of the veterans was like, I am so scared. And for whatever reason in my mind, I probably the worst thing I could have said was, Don't be scared. And then the guy next to me, my partner, who was on their tree with him, was like, No, 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 it's okay, man. It's okay to be scared. You just have to decide what you're gonna do with that. Mm -hmm. Like, and it was it was one of those moments for me. I'm like, dang, I've been doing this for like six years, and he just, you know, this guy's been doing this for like I think two months. I'm like, he just taught me something real quick that I knew, but sometimes in the moment you you forget it, right? You get caught up. Like, no, don't be scared, man. Get on that rope, you'll be great. No, be scared, but then choose what you're going to do with it. It's the same thing with crying. It's okay to cry. It's okay to let out that emotion. Then you get to choose. Now that I've experienced this emotion, you get to choose
0: what you do with it. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's so much value in when you do say the wrong thing. And I'm going to put my foot in my mouth so many more times in my life to come back and just say, oh, you know, I said this, I'm sorry. Like, I probably messed that up. Like, how are you doing? Like, (laughs) are you still feeling some, some stress there? And that's okay. Like, you know, to, to come back and just. Hit the reset button, right? Well, and there's a humility in that, and saying, "Look, yeah, yeah I said this wrong, and
1: I, I'm sorry." Um, trying to make amends or trying to to repair that, make that repair attempt with that individual. Nine out of ten times, that's all they need to hear is, "You're sorry," you know, and
0: done. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Rich, I feel like I've taken a left turn here, and, and, and where anywhere we should regroup with this concept of mental health or with the moral injury, any anything else with with moral injury.
1: You know, I think one of the only things I would say with moral injury is as church leaders, sometimes we tend to go right to
0: the scriptures or
1: or right to Christ, which is a valid thing, right? But if they're experiencing a a moral injury, especially, they already know that, right? Like Mm -hmm. they already know they wouldn't be having a moral injury if they didn't already have that connection with Christ. If they didn't have that, I know this is wrong, or I know what the scriptures say, they wouldn't be having that. So again, to your point, Talk to me about how you're feeling. Like, I'm not going to sit here and throw scriptures at you right now. I'm not going to sit here and throw, you know, well, this is what, Jesus, you know, WWJD. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just talk with you and hear you out and hear you talk through it. Because especially with that moral injury, they, they already know.
0: Oh, man, this is, I mean, we could do episodes on this. But yeah, there is this natural desire to just read the scripture and be like, look at Captain Moroni. Talk about a guy who understood the military, right? And. Right you know, and and then sort of project his experience or, and, you know, and he turned out great. You know, he, I'm sure he had a lot of moral injury. Right. And so, and I I would hate to be the guy who says to leaders, just set the scriptures aside for a minute, but there are some times where we'll get to the scriptures. We'll get to Jesus and the feel goods and the plan of salvation. We'll get to that at some point, but for right now, I'm just going to be 100% present with this person. Right.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. And I think that to me, with everything we've talked about, that right there is the key. Because when you're present with the person, when you're when you're listening to the them and not talking at them, when you're just listening to them, then you can decide what do they really need? Do they need professional help? Do they need a friend? What What is it they need that I can help with? But you're not going to get that if you already know what you're going to say next and you're not listening to what they're actually saying. Or if you're not getting to the underlying issue and you're just focusing on, like you said earlier, the behavior.
0: Yeah. All right. Anything else with... Uh- mental health or concerns there you know i think the only other thing i would hit with that to be fair is what about the families
1: right yeah. a lot of times you know i have a very supportive wife my wife's uh, amazing i still don't understand what she saw in me but i'm very grateful yeah. for that side note my wife is heather locklear i can say that to some folks i have no idea oh really my maiden name is heather locklear yeah
0: oh, and that, now all the the uh, rumor riddle starts is uh oh do you know heather locklear is a day saint all right yeah, exactly there you go it'll be all over now so is that her maiden name is Locklear? It was, yeah. Her maiden oh, name no. was Heather Locklear. Yeah. I so you I it. the time.
1: Exactly. <laughs> but one of the things, you know, is how does it impact the family? My wife and I, have a rock solid relationship. We really do. And whenever I would have some sort of issue where I would need her help, I got to the point where I would know to say, okay, now that I'm through, how are you doing? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, let me check on you. Because a lot of times when a veteran is struggling, when anybody's struggling with any type of mental health, their partner takes on more of a caregiver role and they lose themselves in that role because all they're doing is taking care of their significant other. All they're doing is making sure they're okay, checking out their stressors, making sure their coping skills are going okay. And just like you said, you could lose yourself in the title of a bishop or a branch president. These individuals could lose themselves in the title of caregiver and all of a sudden they've lost their identity because mm-hmm. all they're doing is tending to the needs of that veteran.
0: Yeah. And is another like a clinical term, like, is this a form of codependency, right? That they get their value and identity from making sure that their spouse, their veteran spouse is okay and functioning and getting to work on time type of thing.
1: Right? And sometimes it absolutely is. You know, One of the, probably the greatest retreats I've had in the last couple of years with my job was we did one for family support members, usually significant others of the veteran, but uh, we had actually two moms on there as well. And it was really interesting hearing their perspective of, I'm tired. I haven't taken care of myself in years. I've been taking care of them And I've been working for them. And that is all I am right now. You know, All I do is take care make sure they've got their medication. I make sure they have this and make sure they have that. And I don't know who I am anymore outside of that. So just like as a veteran, we can get lost in that identity of being a veteran, or like you said, as a bishop or a branch president, the family members sometimes, and again, generalizing, of course, but the family members will sometimes get caught up in that caregiver role. And that's all they're doing is managing everything for that veteran. And they've lost themselves too. And they probably don't even realize it.
0: Yeah, and this interesting thing that happens. And correct me if I'm wrong, but like subconsciously, you almost don't want the spouse. Like the the spouse doesn't want their spouse to get healed or get better because then what would I be good for? You know, then well, then what is my role in this relationship?
1: Right, and I think that you know, and I've seen that, and I've also seen it the other way, where I'm tired of of taking care of him. Oh yeah, you know, and, or or them, whatever, right? So I think it just does it does depend on the individual and what else they have going on in their life. You know, my wife. At one point when I was going through some stuff, she was Relief really of present. She's like, look, <laughs> I've got other stuff to do too. So, yeah. you know, and it was great because while she would help me, I also had to figure out some stuff on my own.
0: Yeah. Really helpful. And anything else in the context of family members, you know, I, I guess, and this goes for all things, but especially with the military, like it's so easy to hyper-focus on the veteran who's having the issue, right? Like, I'm going right. to make, make sure I'm meeting with him weekly and, and visiting and whatnot, but we- can unintentionally dismiss what the dynamics how the dynamics are impacting the spouse or the children. And so maybe you know, calling like, how are you? Like what's what's yeah. this experience been like for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a big, big part of it. Because a lot of times, depending on where the relationship's at, they won't open up in front of the veteran because they don't want them to see that they're a burden. And I use that term loosely. That's not the intentionality behind it. Right. But they don't want them to see that it's it's a little bit of a struggle for them because they want to continue to help. But sometimes just taking them aside and talking to them, finding if there's a retreat for, like I said, for family support members, that was probably the most eye-opening retreat I've ever done because one, they bonded super quick. We had uh, 14 ladies and they bonded so quickly. And I went into it thinking it was going to become like a, a bashing session, if you will. And that wasn't it at all. They really talked so much about how do you help your veteran? And then it turned into, okay, but how do you help yourself? And that's probably the biggest piece when you're dealing with family support members is do you do anything for yourself? And if not, how can we start to figure that part out? Because eventually it will wear on you. It may not right now because you're being super supportive and super helpful and that's appreciative, but at what point is it going to wear on you? Because it will.
0: Yeah. And that's, I mean, like building in that self-care for that person so that they can, you know, maybe they do need that, that sisterhood or brotherhood or they need that retreat or the, the, just the self-care so that they can then return to the relationship and be the, their best selves. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else as far as like, uh, I mean, I'm thinking like deployments and things, obviously there's, I think most wards will pick up on like, obviously this husband's going to be gone for nine months or the mom's going to be deployed for six months. We're going to, yeah. this is where we, we shine, right? We're going to be there with males. We're going to do the things. And I mean, is there right. anything else to consider when it comes to deployments?
1: You know what I found uh, a lot when we're in areas that have a lot of deployments, the significant others usually find each other, which is really cool. You know, my wife, uh, when I would go deployed, there was always somebody else that was either deployed or another family that lived around the corner. And it's amazing how the military kind of come together to take care of their own in that. And so sometimes in the ward, it's just just checking in, right? Just doing your normal normal duty. And you know, one of the best things we ever did, I remember being stationed in Alaska and we had one winter where it was a bunch of people deployed, a bunch of people deployed. And I had, for some reason... I was Elderscorn president, so I should have known better. But I had a snowblower. As an Scorn president, having a snowblower in Alaska—dumb move. <laughs> but my wife would help, and me and like another guy would go and snowblow a bunch of driveways. And my wife would have like hot chocolate waiting for us and all of that. But it was a way to connect. But I don't think it would have fallen the same if it was you know the regular you know, the civilians doing it. It was military helping military, and it really did make a difference.
0: Yeah, I love it. Love that. Rich, it's almost as if you could start your own podcast feed and you know and then really talk about these issues. If only you do that, right? Right. I, and I do as a matter of <laughs> fact. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. And, that, uh, and we can maybe there's one or two uh, you know, I, I want to make sure we we cover the, the big points here and but obviously we're not going to create a well rounded end all resources in, right. in a, a short podcast. But any other concept or thing do you want to make sure we touch on before we wrap up? You know, I think one of the big things is just
1: uh Knowing your common do's and don'ts and also knowing your comfort zone as a leader, right? What is your comfort zone? Because if you're not being genuine to you, it's going to get picked up on, right? If if you're not real comfortable delving into a lot of the mental health stuff, then don't because chances are you're going to end up doing more harm anyway. Mm -hmm. So knowing your level of comfort zone, but also knowing that there are so many resources out there. There are so many veteran support organizations out there that can help. And chances are, there's people in your ward who have experience that you don't even know about that you can lean on for help. I know my bishop uh, now kind of knows my background and, and he will reach out to me quite often, not to to meet with individuals, but to say, hey, how can I deal with this? Like, what are your thoughts in this area? So knowing your resources, knowing how to utilize them. And like we said earlier, knowing that you don't have all the answers and that's, that's perfectly okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Rich, this has been... Uh, incredible I really appreciate uh, I'm so glad you reached out and we could have this discussion like we, we uh, teased just a minute ago with uh, you have your own podcast feed that you're you're putting some thoughts into and it's for latter-day saints and veterans right or those that are have a loved a loved one veteran in their life
1: right so the name of the podcast um just speaking to who I am is thoughts of a veteran Christian mental health dude that's the name <laughs> of the podcast. I try to keep it a little more generic as far as faith goes, uh, oh, okay. not just to Latter-day Saints. But Realistically, it's anywhere from you know eight to 13-minute clips of just little pieces of advice, little pieces of guidance that can help veterans in their lives and, and realistically anybody. But I do always try to keep a focus on veterans. I always have some semblance of a mental health tidbit in there and definitely always focus on relationship with Christ.
0: Yeah, love it. Well, you know how I typically end these interviews with asking about uh, your leadership experience connected to your following of Jesus Christ. But I'll put a spin on it this time. How has being a veteran better helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ?
1: I think for me, being a veteran and experiencing some of the things I've experienced has forced me to rely more on the Savior. Because when you have trauma of any kind, and I say veteran, but when you have trauma of any kind, therapy is great, talking with others is great. But for me, I talked earlier about values. Spirituality is one of my top four values. And when I wasn't connected with that, I was struggling. When I connected both my trauma and those types of things with my faith, that's when I really started to see the work being done. And so to a certain extent, you know, trials make you stronger. I don't like canned answers, we've already went over that. But it has drawn me so much closer to Christ because I've learned how much more I had to rely on Him.
0: other leaders that you may know who would really appreciate the perspectives that we discussed. And remember, to review the Mentally Healthy Saints Library, click the link in the show notes or go to LeadingSaints.org 14.
1: It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought Forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. and When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living Church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.